Oh, hey, Sarah. Hey, Brian. Hey, uh, where's Eric? About that. Um, all right, well, okay. You know how Eric is, uh, you know, he gets sick kind of often. Yeah, well, he's got four kids. And yeah, I you know. Has to happen quite a bit. Germ factories, but you know, <laughs> the the biggest thing. So he was he was at home this weekend. He was chilling, out relaxing, maxing all cool. And um, these guys came in, like burst open the door, and just started following him around, and like taking notes, and sampling food from his fridge. And it was really bizarre. They were taking like poop samples from the litter box it was really very peculiar um and after like being there for you know a couple days and they just left and well now eric has smallpox jesus yeah that's what happens with the invasive white people Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. And I'm Sarah Ashley. And uh, no joke, Eric actually is sick. No, he does not have smallpox. And no, his house was not invaded by European explorers. <laughs> <laughs> no, his house is inhabited by a descendant of a European explorer, more than likely. No, Eric's not from a European explorer at all. We know exactly where he comes from. He comes from Belgium. So, <laughs> Belgium and Ireland, basically. But uh, nevertheless, though, fun metaphor and a little bit of a PSA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about imperialism. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, how are you? I am hanging in there, man. Yeah. I am hanging in there. We're recording on a weekday night, which doesn't happen as often. And no. so, uh, so coming off a long day of work, but. Yeah, and it's just the weather. And I know it's so pedestrian to talk about the weather mm-hmm. on a podcast, but I mean, in California. And I know I just used one of our bleeps right away, but it just, it. People don't believe the planet's warming up, and yet we have 80-degree weather one week, and then the next week it jumps down to the 40s. So, What you going to do? Fun stuff. You have to be prepared with layers. Exactly. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And the layers may include up to a parka. <laughs> so, Brian. So, yeah. Um, I asked how you were. Aren't you going to ask how I'm doing? I don't really care. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> How are you doing, Brian? I'm fine, Sarah. Thank you for asking. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, I'm good, actually. Yeah, Guys and Dolls just opened, so I'm excited about that. Um, three weekends left to go. Great cast. Really great cast. And really, it's been getting a really good response with audiences. So, yeah. That's all I have to report for for now. So Cool. Yeah. So, shall we get into the topic at hand? Yeah, let's get into the topic with both hands. Yep, you're really going for it, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so today, this is, I feel terrible that Brian, that uh, Eric's not here because this was actually his idea. Yeah. Um, and uh, he wanted to talk about the Amazon. Yeah, and it's kind of fitting because we had talked about, you know, Egypt last week. We talked about, you know, we're talking about excavation archaeology, right? Mm -hmm. The two basic places that you go for archaeology are either the Mediterranean because of the Greeks and the Egyptians, Mm -hmm. or you go to South America. Oh, wait, South America? Yeah. I thought you were talking about Amazon.com. What's scary, folks, is I can't tell if she's lying or not. Totally lying. (laughs) That should have been the cold open. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) One One of our misnomer 
skits yeah. that we've done of the many that we've of done. Of the many. Yeah. <laughs> of the many mistaken topic episodes. Yeah, no, not that one. Yeah. Not that one. Not the biggest online retailer ever no. in the universe. I'm pretty sure you can order from like Alpha Centauri. <laughs> yeah, and I'm pretty sure you can also click the About Us link and find out all about their history, but we're not talking about that right now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Still two-day shipping, by the way, from Alpha Centauri. Pretty oh, impressive. Nice. Yeah. yeah. They work their employees really hard, though. Light speed shipping. What can I say? Post light speed shipping. <laughs> no, what we're actually talking about is the Amazon Rainforest, which is the, you know, 2.7 million square mile rainforest in South America. Yeah. The sizable chunk of which is in Brazil. Yeah, about 60% of it's in Brazil. Um, then the next chunk, about 13 to 15%, is in um, Peru. Then Colombia, and then there's little parts that touch, you know, Venezuela, Ecuador, Bolivia. Bolivia, yeah. Yeah, a few other, say, few yeah. other ones. Guiana, yep. Suriname, French Guinea. Uh, sure. Or sorry, French Guiana. French Guiana, yeah. Ugh. I'm sorry, guys. My allergies are acting up tonight, so I yeah. apologize if you hear any random um, slurring or sneezing. I immediately went back to fifth grade geography tests, uh-huh. and they said, what or fourth grade geography tests, what language do they speak in French Guiana? Uh, French? <laughs> pass because yeah. it was in the title <laughs> see whenever i hear guiana and suriname i think of um uh the nations of the world song from animaniacs of course because <laughs> it just happens um so let's talk about how it was discovered quickly because i think we're going to focus more on fairly recent history yeah with amazon but it deserves its context oh yeah no we definitely need to talk about when the west discovered it when the west discovered because I mean, by the time that um, Spanish conquistadors found the Amazon, native tribes have been living there for at least fifteen th- or at least ten thousand years, maximum fifteen thousand years. Yeah, civilizations had had risen and fallen. Yes, multiple times. Yeah, since they had gotten there, and we'll find proof of that a little later. Um, but more specifically, the one that we want to talk about is Francisco de Orellana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, to be fair, Pizarro has a little bit of a hand. Uh, in it too because he at least Pizarro knew that there were natives who were in that part of the world yeah but so I guess he kind of knew what to expect but nevertheless he came and he was there to like any of the conquistadors he was Mm -hmm. there to expand the Spanish empire yeah and interestingly enough they didn't discover the Amazon from its mouth in the Atlantic no they went up and over the Andes and came down the eastern side. They took the Lord of the Rings route. Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they went from Quito, Ecuador um, in 1541. And they were actually on a journey f- to find cinnamon and gold. That's it. More specifically, um, El Dorado, if they could find it. El Dorado, right. Yes. The mythical golden city. The, the city that was so rich, the emperor dusted himself in gold. And there were gold laying bricks everywhere. Uh Turns out that is highly improbable because that region does not have a lot of stone nearby. Yeah. Let alone the masonry skills to make entire cities out of that stone yeah. in that area. So yeah. Well, and yeah. and the indigenous people there were kind of be like, you know, all right, cool, we'll help you, but just so you know, the city doesn't actually exist. But I mean, we'll keep going. <laughs> yeah. And um. It's and like, come on, they're paying us. Right. Pro- actually, probably not. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And so they were, um, they actually did have some indigenous help until they decided to kill those people. Yeah. Um, and then they were also um, losing supplies, 
killing off their horses and their dogs and their cattle for food. And they just had a really, really rough time. Yeah. And that just speaks to, I mean, this is a harsh terrain to travel in. I mean, nowadays, it's been largely deforested for purposes of farming. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, I mean, we're talking heavy brush. We're talking... You know, obviously, there's there's bo- several rivers that go through the Amazon. Well, forest. this isn't even in the Amazon yet, really. Like they haven't even found the river yet. This is just, this is just getting to it at this point where they were just making their way through, and then they get to a point where um, they did find a spot where two rivers met up. They hopped in a boat and started to take it downriver from there, and then that's where they run into the Amazon and actually discover the river itself. Right, which is next to the Nile, the largest river in the world, if not the largest yes. river in the world. So. It's, I think it's the largest by volume of water. Right, but um, not the longest. The Nile's the longest. longest is yeah. The longest, yeah. Um, and while they were going through and, you know, they finally, they left in um, 1541, mind you, in February 1541. They found the Amazon River um, on February 11th of 1542. It took them a year just to get to the river. Yeah. And it was, like I said, not not an easy journey for them. Not hospitable terrain at all. No. And, you know, of course, them as explorers were not very hospitable people. And as they were going down river, they were slaughtering tribes left and right. Mm-hmm. The whole way down. Like you do when you're a conquistador. Like you do. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. They, they they ran low on food and they had to like start slaughtering their dogs and their horses. They clearly didn't run out of gunpowder yeah. or of ammunitions or they were really good with their swords. Yeah. I mean, at one point they did have to stop and build a boat for a little while where they found some, I guess they did find some um, friendly indigenous people and stayed with them for 20 days while they made 20,000 nails just to rebuild a boat. Wow. Yeah. And actually, at that point, because they were gone for so long, Oriana was accused of being a deserter because they thought that he abandoned the expedition, that he left all of the, his fellow conquistadors behind. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah. I think one of the common themes we're going to see tonight mm-hmm. is as you talk about any explorer from any period of time going through this forest, it is so thick and it is so such a long journey Mm -hmm. that i think the isolation is the hardest aspect of it to deal with yeah and and we'll find out that a couple different times as you go go Mm -hmm. on here and that's clearly the case here too yeah yeah um and then they finally reached the atlantic ocean um on august 26th of 1542 so it even took them several months just to get down river to get back to the atlantic so um and the whole time you know there were monks spanish monks that were there um you know. Of course, trying to mit- to convert the peoples. Well, sure. mostly they're taking notes and yeah. keeping tabs on the uh, journey and what happened. And what's really interesting is that um, there was um, one man who was there. His name was uh, Frey Gaspar. And his account of what happened really doesn't talk much about the people of the Amazon rainforest doesn't really talk about the natural history, the biodiversity, anything like that. He mostly just talks about how screwed up this expedition was and why it, how it was so difficult, um, how they had to pray to the Holy Virgin every night because they thought they were going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Mother Mary, please have mercy on yeah, us. Yeah, and, and basically how the Spaniards went down and were, were attacking and burning villages and they killed any indigenous people that didn't run away from them. 
And apparently, as they were going down, the indigenous people were getting increasingly more and more hostile. Gee, I yeah. wonder why. <laughs> and so... Um, it, it is funny because you're talking about... Not funny, haha. Funny as in strange. Mm-hmm. The classical definition of the word funny. Uh, when you're comparing the type of warfare... Because the conquistadors were fairly well armed in comparison, right? But at the same time... Even though the native tribes were using, you know, predominantly bows and arrows, mm-hmm. they were powerful arrows and they oh, were yeah. quite forceful. They actually could go through boats. Yeah. Well, yeah. and even to this day, um, even some of the, un, you know, uncontacted tribes will shoot arrows at planes and helicopters and anything going overhead or anybody who comes too close. And they're using bows that are like four meters long. Yeah. So, I mean, it's no joke. <laughs> we're, talking, we're talking like ancient Greek status, mm-hmm. like ballista level stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's pretty intense um, about, you know, really wanting to, to keep people out. And, and also keeping in mind, too, that a lot of um, a lot of the tribes there, you know, knew of each other, Um but didn't really interact as much with each other. Some were neighboring, some partnered up, but other ones didn't interact as much and and really kind of keep to themselves in their individual communities. Um, even to this day, some don't really interact too much. Some are really permanent settle- settled communities. Other ones are nomads that move every five days or so. So it's very interesting that there is a lot of diversity within the indigenous culture in the Amazon too. For sure. So once we get past the Spanish introduction to yeah. the Amazon. I mean that and that was the first introduction and that wasn't the end of it of course either. No. There were plenty of people who were going back. There yeah. was you know 13 years later after um after Oriana died trying to backtrack <laughs> and in 1546 he went back tried to backtrack his steps and go up the Amazon from the Atlantic and he he died in doing so. Right. Um but uh one guy his name was Lope de Aguirre. And I, I'm so sorry. Aguirre. Yeah, I can't. Aguirre. I'm having a hard time rolling my R's today. <laughs> I'll say it again. Aguirre. Thank you. Uh, well, he decided to um, completely overtake his expedition. He named himself the leader. In fact, he named himself the king of Peru. Ah. And he wrote. I'm sure that was successful. Yeah, he wrote a letter of succession, if you will, to the king of Spain saying, um, screw you, I'm staying here and I'm the king now. And he basically went through and started killing anybody who was trying to get in his way of taking over this whole land. And he eventually um, settled on uh, Margarita Island off the coast of Venezuela. And but he's still the king of Peru. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and also the people who helped rebel with him then decided to uh, desert him, and a couple of them decided to kill him. And they gave his head to a local governor, and then gave his hands to to uh, townspeople who um, threw one in the river and fed the other to the dogs. Oh wow, that's utterly charming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, lesson learned, folks. Don't never... name yourself the king of Peru. <laughs> never... No. <laughs> For any egomaniac who decides that he's in charge, they usually have a very swift downfall yep. and a very short reign as leader. Yep. So, uh, lesson in leadership mm-hmm. <laughs> brought to you by history. Uh, so, let's move forward in history a little bit in time. Because, obviously, once the New World had been in contact with Europe, there would be consistent trade that was going on. Obviously, there would be cocoa that was cultivated and sent back mm-hmm. into Europe from there. So the constant stream of of 
ships would happen. But where the exploration continues is less about conquering and more about just learning about this vastly majestic and mysterious part of the world, right? So as you get into the mid-18th century, mm -hmm. into the early 19th century, you start to see, of course, the really the birth of modern science. Uh, and so, and particularly in, th in the fields of biology and the fields of archaeology and the fields of uh, geography as well. Yeah. So with that, I mean, you also have people like Alexander von Humboldt, uh, who was, a, he was a geographer. He was a naturalist, as they would call it, right? And because he was willing to go into the South American continent and just explore, he was naturally just an explorer, right? But he did some pretty cool stuff. Like he... He encountered several species of, of animals. One that was, I think, is really kind of cool is the the Wakari monkey. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not actually a monkey; it's a primate. Uh, sure. Well, monkey ape? is a primate, but an ape. It looks more ape-like, but it's it looks almost like an odd fusion of a baboon and an orangutan. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got a red face, uh, a, a large red face, but it's also got this very big bushy red fur mm -hmm. around its body too. It's actually kind of scary looking, um, but it looks pretty cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was from one of his personal travels from approximately 1799 uh, when he got there. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, he did stuff. He did stuff. <laughs> he did stuff, stuff and things. I mean, he did some pretty unusual things. Like he had uh, eight turtle eggs when he was in the Peruvian Amazon. As you do. As you do. So aside from, you know, discovering, well, not really discovering, because the Wakari monkey was known to the natives already it actually okay. had a different name it was uh uh Jiao. okay or um and we don't know what that means because unfortunately those civilizations have gone extinct so uh, we'll never know what the original meaning of that word meant but um what he also did find is he discovered these natives as well as these capuchin monks again they were there to learn and convert christianize that and that make region. cappuccinos and make it well so the cappuccino comes from that i know yeah yeah um Okay, quick little tangent, sorry. Guys, so the reason why a cappuccino is called a cappuccino is uh, the ca it comes from the cappuccino monks. They've got brown, light brown uh, coffee-like, you know, ha not habits, but, you know, like the same kind of robes you would expect a Franciscan mm -hmm. to wear. But the top, the kind of the Beretta-like part where there's a fold, basically, that part is lighter and almost cream colored mm -hmm. white part so when they said cappuccino it's because the layers of it look like the habit of a cappuccino monk mm -hmm. so the cassock of a cappuccino monk so yeah. there you have it there you have your little factoid that is not only about catholic monks but also about coffee about two coffee. things that brian really likes <laughs> <laughs> that is true um but anyway so they he found the cappuccino monks and the natives we're taking these really large shells and whacking them with sticks to to get at this almond-shaped nut that was quite large. And guess what we discovered? He basically, they are Brazil nuts, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, Brazil nuts are very nutritious, also very high in calories and very, very high in fat. Mm -hmm. uh, so much so that they run, they go rancid very quickly. Really? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you've ever eaten a bad Brazil nut, ugh. Bleh. It tastes like mold. It's not. It's bleh. It's, it's bleh. Yeah. Indeed. Um, but they are lovely. Um, when they're good. When they're good. <laughs> uh, and they're excellent in baking. Yeah. So you can thank 
uh, Humboldt for at least making reports on the nuts. Yeah. He was not a huge fan of them himself. Mm-hmm. But thanks to his reports, the rest of the world enjoys them. Yeah. So. And again, we're just going to go ahead and clarify that any single time we say so-and-so discovered something or other, we mean discovered it for the sake of Western culture. Exactly. Yeah. They Thank were you. not the originators to find it. Yeah, that's why I yeah. said report more than discover, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. He didn't discover the Brazil net, obviously. Yes. So. Um, well, and it's, you know, it is kind of cool that, you know, early explorers started to record this information to take the these reports, these accounts of the natural history that was going on in the Amazon because the the biodiversity there is, it's outrageous. It's so, this such a compact area to have such a huge you know biome if you will and uh and you know just for some perspective um around this you know around today um they've found at least forty thousand plant species in the amazon alone oh oh absolutely and over two thousand different types of fish um over 1200 types of birds uh 427 mammals um, 378 reptiles, 428 amphibians, and about um, 2.5 million different types of insects. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know who we can thank for a huge chunk of that? Uh, Henry Walter Bates, who was a British naturalist and explorer. Um, by the way, I should have mentioned before... Uh, my apologies that Alexander von Humboldt uh, mm-hmm. was German. Gotcha. Uh, so just to put some perspective. Yeah, Bates was a good guy. And in fact, uh, well-respected. He um, he was at one point after his exploits in South America, he had become the assistant secretary to the Royal Geographical Society. And that comes into play a little bit later uh, as well when we get to Percy Fawcett. But um, yeah, he ha- he handled a good chunk of discovering those those species that you refer to. Um, in fact, uh, he, the resource I'm reading here actually claims over 8,000 species that were previously unknown mm-hmm. to science, to science. Yeah. So, uh, the numbers can be quite staggering as you, as you go on, uh, with it. He noted particularly in his writings, the one on, uh, the naturalist on the rivers, Amazons was his book on it. He talk, talked a lot about how the worst experience from that region was not the alligators or the serpents or the jaguar that had been, you know, noted, but it was really it was the absence of news from the outside world, mm-hmm. right? Because when you're going on these expeditions, you're it, usually one to two days from a camp. Uh, I mean, you can set up camp yourself, but from like a from any semblance of civilization, you usually had to send envoys to 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 route messages back and forth to say, hey, I got to this point. I'm yeah. still alive. Don't go sending a search party. Yeah, exactly. Basically. And and that with that kind of bare bones form of communication, you don't have any way of really mm-hmm. getting contact from the outside world. They didn't have satellite phones back then. Right. Or hearing what's going on in the world either. Yeah. So. They did not have Sirius XM radio back then. No, of course not. <laughs> and, you know, they're not going to be able to get the paper from London. No, definitely not. No, not at all. Not even in a in a in a city nearby. So um, he knows some weird stuff. Uh, there was a particular area where the villagers were running. This is in the, the summer and they had been pretty deprived of meat. Mm-hmm. So the villagers had just started shooting toucans. Oh my God. Yeah. And they started stewing them. 
Yeah. So he saw some weird things that were going on. I, I mean, you got to do what you got to do right. <laughs> to survive, right? Oy. Oh, Poor all those lost Fruit Loops. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Not Toucan Sam. <laughs> follow your nose. <laughs> no, seriously, follow your nose. Go that way. Go that way. They're oh, shooting at us. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so he was cool. Yeah. Yeah, that is really interesting. And, um, you know, also... Like, don't forget, in the Amazon, they some of the l- world's largest predatory creatures live in the Amazon, uh, like the jaguar and the black caiman and the cougar and the anaconda. The anaconda. As made famous by the Jennifer Lopez movie. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact... Aptly you, titled. Aptly titled. And anaconda. Anaconda. <laughs> exactly. By the way, folks, if you are fans of Nerds on Film, listen to our episode Anaconda de Vida, which yeah. is us talking about the ana- movie Anaconda. One of our best episodes, I think. We didn't talk the whole episode about anaconda, anaconda, though, right? What did we talk about? I think it was all about just really, really bad horror movies. I think so. Is what it was. It had to have been. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't think talking about Anaconda warrants an entire episode. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But Sean... Sean brilliantly came up with the title for that episode, and he mentioned it in the episode, so... Yes. He deserves our praise. But yeah, so anacondas, terrifying creatures, oh, massive yeah. creatures that can eat entire large mammals over mm-hmm. the course of months. Yep. Uh, I think they can even handle like as much as a goat, can't they? Probably, yeah. 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 Um, also, don't forget there's electric eels and piranha. In, and the electric eels in that region are nasty. They can they they are powerful enough to kill a human being. Yes, and they're they are. huge. They're like six feet long too. Yeah. Yeah, they're big guys. And uh and poison dart frogs, which is really cool. They're also very pretty blue. Mm-hmm. Poison dart frogs. They look really pretty and they're like you're like, Oh, look at the cute little blue frog. Ah I'm dying. They just spit at you? Okay, well not actually. Um they are they are poison frogs. Um, and they have uh, secretions that come out of their skin. And indigenous people have been known to use the poison secretions on the tips of darts and spears and, and arrowheads and whatnot. Got it. So they're them. called that because they are their poison is used in poison darts. Yes. And spears. But wouldn't it be so cool if they spit poison darts at you? It would be very counterintuitive of a frog. Like, they're, if their tongue... You know, which can be a very powerful weapon. If that had like a sudden toxin on it that would kill you in a few minutes, like that, just like you whip somebody with your tongue and like then they're they're down for the count. That would be kind of terrifying. What if they like shot their tongue out and then a tiny little like like uh, barb shot out from the tip of their tongue and then went into your neck and then that you would died. be pretty terrifying too. I think it'd be more terrifying if this frog approached you on a tree branch with a banjo and started singing <laughs> at you and then attacked you. <laughs> Don't go to the Amazon folks. It's a scary place. <laughs> if you start hearing the notes to rainbow connection, you run, you run for your <laughs> you life. Just run. <laughs> run for your life. <laughs> oh my goodness. Do you want to talk about Fawcett? Oh, my God. How can we not? You cannot talk about the Amazon without talking about the adventures of Colonel Percy Fawcett, the man who inspired Indiana Jones. Well, actually, Indiana Jones was inspired by Alan Quartermain, but Alan Quartermain was a fictitious character who was no doubt inspired by <laughs> Percy Fawcett. So Brian's lying to all of us right now. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but Percy Fawcett was a big deal. So he had gained... Uh, Accord in the British military, right? Mm-hmm. You don't get to the rank of colonel without being good at what you do, right? 
Uh, he was a member of the Royal Geographical Society, which was the society in England for, you know, exploring, essentially, and helping, you know, form the world maps better. Uh, he had... Exp- now, now we're getting closer. We're getting... We're branching into the 20th century now. Uh, he had been to the Amazon a couple times. Once was in 1907. Uh, and the second time, and the last time, unfortunately, was in 1925. Uh, and he had been, some people say he was looking for El Dorado. He didn't, he never called it that. He had, was looking for the remains of a civilization, which he, he just called Zed, which is, of course, is the British pronunciation for the letter Z. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know where the significance of Z comes from. I think it's just, it's just there to have a name for it. Um, but the idea is that he was expecting, you know, again, stone kind of structures like we did time because not too long before that Machu, Machu Picchu had been discovered uh, of course, on the mountaintop in in Peru. So this whole idea that civilizations can be found um, was fresh in the minds of explorers at this period. And uh, what I'm going to focus more about is his last venture, because that's the one where he he his 22 year old son and his son's friend just outright disappeared. And um, we still don't know for sure what happened to him. We have obviously have speculation, but um, that. That's kind of what has people fascinated to today. Uh, before we get to that, though, let's talk about why he's the inspiration of Indiana Jones. Uh, first of all, if you think of Indiana Jones, what, other than the whip and the hat, like what do you what what are the character traits you normally associate with Indiana Jones? Harrison Ford's chest. Okay, maybe I shouldn't be asking you this. <laughs> you're, uh, you're asking the wrong person. Harrison Ford. Harrison, Harrison Ford. Ford shirtless. <laughs> Harrison Ford running all sweaty like. <laughs> Harrison Ford with a shirt that's open so you can see his bare chest. Yes. Uh, Harrison Ford with a, with a shirt with his sleeves ripped off so you can see his rippling biceps. Yep. Okay, we get it. We get it. Okay. <laughs> I put words in your mouth that are probably accurate. But again, those aren't character traits. <laughs> those are physical attributes. Oh. No. If you think about Indiana Jones, you think about Kinda the Kind of cocky. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to have a bit of an ego when you... Kind of like a chaotic good character. Sure. I think you have to have a bit of an ego no matter what if you're going to go into the unknown and say, I'm going to find something. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to be, I'm going to bring it to the world, not necessarily for fame, but I'm going to bring it back to the world. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to have a bit of an ego to do that. But aside from that, I think I when I think of Indiana Jones, I think of his, his ability to understand cultures and his ability to assimilate into cultures very easily. I shouldn't say assimilate. His ability to adapt into cultures fairly easily. Sure. Because if you look at all of the Indiana Jones adventures, mm-hmm. barring the TV series, because I really didn't watch the TV series, he is he is able to make friends in almost any part of the world. He's able to learn languages fairly quickly. You know, he's able to understand the the, the cultures of the people very easily, and because of that, it gets him into places that he may not have had access to mm-hmm. otherwise. All those traits come from Percy Fawcett. Mm. He was friends with hostile tribes. He was able to make friends with hostile tribes because, you know, he wasn't there to harm them. It's like, oh, yeah, you want some food? Here, here's some food. Yeah. I'm, I'm, hey, I'm just here to, you We're know, cool, guys. We're, we're cool. all cool. I'm just exploring. Don't mind me. You yeah. Know? Of course, he did have people shoot at them, like also what you would expect with Indiana Jones. He mm-hmm. couldn't be friends with everybody. Yeah. Right? So, you know, he had situations during some rivers where, you know, again, he had arrows shot at uh, and, you know. Did he also have to run away from a boulder? Um, no. No. That part was definitely movie magic. <sighs> Disappointing. Disappointing. <laughs> but um, 
the last letter he sent was to his wife on uh, May 29th of 1925. And he calls, uh, he calls the, the camping spot where he was uh, Dead Horse Camp. Now, keep in mind, because he was an excellent geographer, he had a compass and he was logging on a journal his coordinates uh, pretty much every day, you know. So uh, he is his journal writings uh, and that he had was sending back and forth with envoys was he was at Dead Horse Camp, which is approximately latitude uh, 11 degrees uh, and 40. I'm sorry, 11 degrees and 43 minutes south and a longitude of uh, 540 degrees, 35 minutes west. For those who don't know longitude and latitude, everything that's in between degrees is minutes and seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which are just smaller gradations in between the degrees. Uh, you know how I remember which one, the difference between longitude and latitude? Uh, lay down for latitude? No. When I was, this image still sticks out in my head. When I was in fourth grade, my fourth grade teacher, he was wearing a, uh, like a dark shirt and, um, and he took a piece of chalk and he drew he drew around his stomach and he's like remember latitude is fatitude (laughs) clearly you found my words very interesting (laughs) (laughs) i'm just saying i just totally remembered that part and it just that stuck with me okay well thank you for thank you for i just feel like if anybody's having a hard time remembering the difference between longitude and latitude maybe that'll help latitude is fatitude latitude is fatitude okay (laughs) Cool. Go on. Basically, uh, the reason why it's called Dead Horse Camp is because it was the approximately the spot where his horse had died five years beforehand. So he'd been to that spot mm-hmm. prior, um, and that and he used his bones as a marking spot. Basically, that's depressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So his calculations were that the the Indians were, and that's I'm just using that as because that's the term that he used. Obviously, they're not called that. Every tribe has its own name, but it was a general term for the indigenous peoples there, right? Um, he had anticipated that he was going to come in contact with a, with a tribe closer to that point mm-hmm. of his destination within about a week or 10 days. And uh, he was trying to find a waterfall. Unfortunately, it's from that point that the trace uh, goes cold. Yeah. Uh, what's really, really weird is that he, and there's nothing paranormal about this guy. It's not like he was abducted by aliens or was in search of some mystical force and just disappeared. Nothing, there's nothing. For the sake of angering Eric, can we say he was abducted by aliens and leave it at that? Sure. Okay, but then for the sake of reality, go on. Yeah. Um, this is where it stops being very Indiana Jones-like, because Indiana Jones is always looking for some artifact that has potential mystical powers to it. And that belongs in a museum. And, and that belongs in a museum, exactly. <laughs> it belongs in a museum! Um one of the many things that Percy Fawcett was not was a treasure hunter. Mm-hmm. He wasn't there to look for shit. Sorry. I know that's another bleep that we just had to use, but there it is. That's two. It is two. And you're using them all. I uh, Well, I'll save one for you, okay? I don't need it. Okay. Well. I'm, I'm getting cocky now. <laughs> yeah, you are. So he was mostly just there to explore. Again, his mission was to find that civilization, which would have been reward enough on its own. Uh, what is interesting is by modern standards, we actually know that he actually probably walked over it the entire time because of the, the, the later deforestations that had happened. Uh, now, because of soybean farms that are being made in South America, they found these very oddly shaped trenches that mm-hmm. form circles and form squares of times. And again, I'm not talking about things that look like signs from aliens. They're not as complex as that. They're just they're just trenches. Mm-hmm. 
but because of the heavy brush that would have been there and the heavy forest around it, you wouldn't have seen them. Those show evidence that there were civilizations there beforehand. And some of these spots may have been used trenches for irrigation that could have supported habitations of 60,000 people, right? So unfortunately, he was walking over what he was looking for the entire time and never found anything because he was he had it in his mind that he was going to see something like Machu Picchu, mm-hmm. basically, and which it just wouldn't have made sense for that area for that to be that way. But uh, what we do know is that he had uh, a ring, a signet ring, which is a ring that you use to seal documents in wax. It's very old school and very British. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he would seal those letters and send them to his wife. His signet ring popped up somewhere in South America in the 1970s. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and he was the only guy with that kind of ring. Yeah. So, when some, so eventually his descendants, uh, I think it was his... Uh, I think it was Ben who would have been his granddaughter because he had two kids. He had a younger son who didn't go with him mm-hmm. on the expedition. Uh, his granddaughter now has the ring and they've identified it as it's absolutely his because you can compare it to the, the, the wax, seals. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's his ring. Um, and they also found his compass shortly after because about when they had heard no contact from him, because again, you would send an envoy out to make sure you know you're okay. Mm-hmm. The Royal Geographic Society got a little concerned and they sent out, you know, a... a search party they found the compass so they didn't find any traces of him or anything else other than than that do you think he went like total heart of darkness and then like well so that's what they thought maybe too because they understand that that's a very again it's a very harsh terrain and it's it's not uncommon to go months without hearing from somebody Uh but once they've been to like a year yeah then they said well okay sounds like he didn't make it Mm -hmm. um and there's a couple of theories as to why that's the case one is that uh, he was killed by natives. That's a fairly probable one. But again, he was a guy who had, was known for making friends, making peace offerings sure. with tribes. So yes, but also unlikely because of that that skill set. Uh, there was also a revolution that was happening in Brazil at the time. So it's possible that there were rebel soldiers who killed him, mm-hmm. uh, not knowing who he was, just thinking he was an enemy. Uh, and since they were on the the opposite side of the war that maybe any European would be on the side of the the establishment probably killed him that way. Um, the other option is they might have just starved. Unfortunately, they might have had a situation where they ran out of resources and there was nothing else they could have done. Yeah, it's not a very hospitable place to be. Mm-hmm. You know, they could have been taken out by any number of natural, you know, occurring things. Mosquitoes, for example. Like, yeah, disease, because there's malaria, yellow fever, and dengue fever that's all there, and rabies from mm-hmm. vampire bats, so. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, you also have the fact that they were slowed down by his son's friend, uh, who is an inexperienced explorer, to say the least. He was not prepared for yeah. the physical demands of that journey, whereas Fawcett was a well-trained military man. He was, keep in mind, he was in his late 50s when he went on this this expedition but even for a man his age at that point yeah he was still a spry fella so uh you know it's one of those unsolved mysteries that we'll we'll never really know for 100 percent for sure but we'll know but because of what we found now we have a pretty good idea yeah of what happened unfortunately we don't we won't be able to ever be able to find his remains um because it's such a one it's such a large area but two who knows what could have happened and they could have floated down a river at one point and yeah. ended up in the ocean, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that, Brian. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> mm. So uh, now I'm going to switch gears a little bit and I'm going to talk about... Um, rubber. 
rubber. Yes, a very interesting industry uh, to come out of uh, the Amazon. And, um, you know, it's kind of known as the rubber boom. You know, we've talked about it before um, where, you know, when we talked about um, inventions from uh, Native Americans and indigenous people, they were the ones to discover rubber um, from rubber trees. And the um, South American Native Americans, um, you know, discovered rubber in the Amazon somewhere probably around 1600. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, um, they were actually using them for ancient forms of like soccer and basketball yes yeah, yeah like doing like a stick ball type game exactly yeah yeah, yeah. sport ball yeah <laughs> that that thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> sports ball um and you know among the many you know spanish conquistadors that went through they were bringing um bits of rubber back including christopher columbus everybody's favorite jerk face um and uh <laughs> mm-hmm. and so they were taking bits of of rubber um back to Europe and it kind of you know got really popular because it was a very fascinating substance and um it was right around the 1800s that some of the more practical uses of rubber were discovered and more namely suspenders <laughs> came into fashion and so they started really using um, and cultivating that area and trying to take advantage of the rubber tree. And so, um, you know, kind of from 1800 through 1879-ish, it was a huge wave of immigration into this area just for the rubber trade. Um and so you're kind of seeing railways being put in, um, new culture that was starting to boom, more towns that are forming, really kind of the big, you know, popul- population boom of South America that is that effectively laid the groundwork for what it is today. Um, and it was when um, the U.S. company Goodyear actually discovered the vulcanization process which, you know, made rubber hard enough to use for car tires. Right. That... And it's a process of basically you you electrify it to a point that that causes it to harden. Yeah. 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 That's when it really, really boomed. That's what really kicked off what is known as the rubber boom. Um, you know, and you got to figure also already at this point by 1879, um, 10,000 tons of rubber was being exported from harvested and exported from south america and from the amazon um and what's really interesting is that there were some people who actually in around the 1880s um took some rubber tree seedlings and took it over to the east indies and they started growing rubber trees over there so they could start taking advantage of having a closer version of their rubber trade over in the east indies but while they were working on that, as the industry was growing in South America, um, it became really devastating for the indigenous peoples that were there. Um, it was effect. It was not even effectively. It was flat out enslavement. It tends to happen a lot when you want to make economic gain out of a country that doesn't have much power. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, as foreign companies became really interested in what was going on with the wild rubber that was growing in the Amazon, um, they basically, you know, sent in all these mestizos, you know, like really, you know, these elite kind of the Spanish Indian descent people um, into that region. Um, and they became businessmen and traders 
and turned into what is what they called cocheros, which are rubber barons. And um, a lot of the governments around the time in Ecuador, Peru, um, Colombia, you know, a lot of them were they were taking a financial interest in this because it was good for their countries. But at the same time, they're also kind of disowning some of the native tribes there and saying, oh, they're not really our citizens, which then were allowing them, allowing those people to then be enslaved by the rubber barons. And the rubber barons didn't even want to do all the dirty work themselves. They were building up their companies. They were putting lots of locations kind of um, in and around the Amazon. And then they were shipping in cheap labor from the islands surrounding there in the Caribbean, often black people, black men, who were then forced to go around and wrangle up the slaves and beat them into submission, make them work, and, um, you know, inflict punishment if they weren't working. And it was a whole cultural overhaul, and it was really, really disruptive and horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people died <laughs> yeah. for the sake of suspenders and tires. But suspenders, <laughs> right? You know, and so well, anything that really would have involved elastic, right? Yeah, exactly. Anything that really involved rubber, yeah, just in general. Um, and so, but you know, they really wanted to use those people because not only were they cheap, and um, a lot of them didn't know how to read. They were forcing them into contracts, um, giving them sort of pay, but not really. But the reason why they kept using them is because they knew how to find the rubber. They knew all the best ways to do it. They knew where to go. They knew the way the seasons operated. Um, and so they took advantage of them. And um, eventually it got to the point where, um, you know, the, it it died off after a while. The rubber boom tanked for a minute because of those rubber seedlings that went to the East Indies. Well, not just that, too. I'm also eventually when we learned by when science learned to be able to synthesize rubber by sure, making plastics that we're not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. Okay. So in the um, so around 1912, it tanked again because the East Indies rubber um, was more readily available, required less labor and was at that point cheaper. So then um, the sort of monopoly that was happening in South America tanked and then you know they kind of were able to let some of those you know some of those slaves go finally but they were but then it left kind of that region really economically depressed because they were really all dependent on the rubber boom sure enter in henry ford of course who obviously has some interest in tires you know for his cars and so what ended up happening was after the um Companies over in the East Indies realized, oh, great. So South America isn't producing rubber anymore right now. Let's jack up our prices. So they did. And then Henry Ford was like, screw that. I'm not paying that, mu- I'm not paying that much money for rubber. He's like, I'm going to go back down to South America and see what I can do. And he created what became known as Fordlandia. Not Portlandia, the TV show, but Fordlandia. And he built his own rubber factory down there where he did actually legitimately hire (laughs) um, indigenous people to work for him. But the difference with this time is, yes, they were being paid. They were being paid fairly. However, they had to completely assimilate to Western culture. So they had to eat um, food from a Western diet. They had to adhere to... um, the Western way of thinking about how work should operate, you know, kind of that nine to five schedule. Um, 
when they were they were forced to participate in certain social hours where they had to dance to Western music um, and wear Western clothing and didn't really get to enjoy any parts of their own culture. They had to be, you know, try to be white people. Yeah. So basically ethnocentrism is what absolutely. Saying, yeah. So part of the problem there was that um, it actually, uh, you know, I mean, granted, Sometimes their health was better as far as they weren't um, contracting malaria as frequently. They weren't getting hookworm as frequently because they were wearing shoes. Um, but at the same time, they were having a lot of stomach problems because they weren't used to the diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they were depressed because they weren't being able to enjoy their own culture and instead were having to square dance and do poetry readings. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like how you put those two together as the two... It's the two things from American culture that you had to do. I mean, that's what they had to do, literally. I'm okay. reading it off my notes. <laughs> okay. All right. And um, it's just it's, it's an interesting combination. That's yeah, all no, really, really. Well, and so I guess what, you know, the indigenous people were more used to um, working before sunrise and after sunset. So working when it was darker, um, you know, around stuff around the around the house and everything like that. And they had to work, like I said, nine to five, and it was a huge um, lifestyle change. And there was a lot of turnover at this plantation, this rubber plantation. And so um, there were a lot of labor disputes. There was an uprising, and then they squashed it. And then there was another uprising, and then they squashed it. And then eventually, um, Fordlandia just kind of epically failed. They moved 80 miles upriver, built a new one. <laughs> Fordlandia, too. Uh, they ended up calling it something else else um what did they call it belterra they called it belterra oh that actually sounds more appropriate than fordlandia yeah yeah and so um you know they they worked there for um for quite some time and actually up into the 1940s um and were pretty successful um in helping support the war effort for a little while um but then you know because during world war ii all the rubber supply was cut off from the far east which really hurt the u.s during wartime um and so they were um producing a lot of uh, rubber but then there was a huge leaf disease epidemic and more label labor problems um which then made it really hard to get a reliable steady supply of rubber from that region so then eventually belterra closed down and um I think Ford sold all of his rubber interests in the area just for $250,000. Yeah, that's less than most houses in this area. (laughs) That's true. But I mean, considering the exchange or the inflation rate at that point. True, but even then still wasn't that much money considering how big the rubber industry was. Yeah. So um, it, it should have been in the millions and it wasn't. Yeah. So, um, but he sold, he sold his interest to the, the Brazilian government and those plantations were, you know, put under control of the Brazilian Northern Agronomical Institute. And that was it. And then um, I think last time we, last time they heard, or last time I had my notes from it, uh, as of 1987, Belterra was used by a company called Latex Pastor to produce rubber, but it wasn't really, it's not um, commercially viable le- levels. So, and Fordlandia to this day is abandoned. So there you go. That's the rubber boom in a nutshell. There you go. Fortlandia, it's abandoned? Yeah, Fortlandia was left abandoned. Sounds like the premise for a horror movie. Right. A South American abandoned rubber plant? Yeah. Where there yeah. were labor uprisings and everything? Yeah. Yeah, it could be ghosts from, you know. That'd be cool. The dead uprisers. <clears throat> Hollywood, call us. Seriously. Ding. 
I know. We have a movie for you. Yeah, so, you know, some pretty some pretty dark origins there. Sure. But then, you know, it seemed like it had a little bit of a turnaround. And then, you know, just then, like you were saying, you learn how to make rubber in a lab. <laughs> yeah, which is post-World War II. I mean, yeah. World War II had a, uh, a prodigious amount of petroleum basis, uh, you know, a, uh, I should say, a, an excess of petroleum as well as nitrates, uh, and so they had to find other ways of using them. They use nitrates more for food, but petroleum, they were able to make, I mean, most of the plastics we have today are based out of petroleum and not from from rubber. So there you have that. Yep. And oftentimes it's more sturdy, too. Yep. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, just if you want to look at, at what's going on in the, the Amazon today, you know, I think most of us are pretty aware that there's, you know, an issue of deforestation, mm-hmm. um, mostly believe it or not, just due to, to cattle ranching. That too, um, yeah. Yes, logging. Um, yes, so soybean farming, as he was referring soybean to. Soybean farming, yeah. yeah. Um, however, it is better than it was. Um, I think they've reduced the um, rate of deforestation in the Amazon something by like 30% since mm-hmm. um, since like 2004. Yeah. So it, it's getting better. Um, we're st- It's still not perfect, but also keep in mind yeah. that you know, with this level of deforestation, there's a lot of carbon emissions that come from that. And so, yeah, because and considering the expanse that the that the Amazon rainforest is, again, two point seven million square miles. Yeah. Um, when you go through and you tear all that down, it's a lot of emissions that we're looking at. Yeah, that, that is. Well, so there's also a uh, and I believe me, I'm I'm all on the side of us protecting the environment. There is an argument to be said that uh, on a global scale, the amount of trees that have been planted has offset carbon emissions from at least that part of it. Um, but I'm more concerned about the deforestation and the effect that it has on habitats that are there. Oh, right? well, because, yeah. Because you're now displacing you know, species upon species of plants and animals. Yeah, displacing or just pretty much killing or, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. R- rendering it extinct. Exactly. So, you know, so. kind of also keeping in mind that there are so few places on this planet that still have species that we're discovering damn near every day. You know, it's like you, you got like places in Central Africa and the Congo and then you've got the Amazon <laughs> and then you've got the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> right. So there really aren't that many are that many places where there's this kind of insane level of biodiversity. So right. to protect that is also extremely important. Yeah. Go to Oklahoma or something and do all, do all the cattle farming. Seriously. <laughs> There's still tons of wide open land in Oklahoma and in Texas, too. Because these are mostly American companies who are doing that, too. That's the thing. It's – anyway. Yeah. We'll get off of our soapboxes yeah. uh, for a second. And you know what we'll do instead? Let's get into some listener feedback. That seems like a great idea. This week in listener feedback. Hey, guess what? We heard back from a listener from the previous episode. Yay! Yay! Uh, oh, but before we get into that, can I say that Gregory? Gregory. The, oh, the Gregory response was amazing. The infamous Gregory got back to us. Yeah, we, so let's talk about that first. Yeah, let me find Okay, there it is. Uh, the great Gregory debate is the <laughs> subject line. <laughs> we appreciate your sense of humor, yeah. sir. Yeah, he says, hi, nerds. I didn't mean to start a debate of whether or not Gregory is a real name. It's just something that I go by, sort of like an anti-nickname. My birth name is only Craig. But there have been times where I've considered changing my name to Gregory so I could say that it's a real name. Maybe an episode on names that sound like they're real but aren't <laughs> but aren't could appear in the future. Uh, keep up the great work, Gregory. 
as I was trying to say before with that great debate, if you name yourself Gregory or if somebody has the legal name Gregory, that makes it a real name. Done. <laughs> so Gregory could very well be a real name if somebody's official name actually is Gregory, as recognized by their government of choice. Yes, indeed. <laughs> mm. uh, so we heard back from the Halivex, uh, whose name is actually Pete. His subject is King Tut's Junk and Other Ramblings of an Insomniac Brit. Hi, guys. I hope this finds you well. I just finished listening to the latest episode, and it was one of my favorites so far. Ancient Egypt is something that has always been an interest, but I have never really read much about. I definitely learned a lot, and I'm itching to read more. Something that Eric touched on, however, leads me to my next point. As with many subjects, there's a lot of crappy information out there, which is often suffocating the quality. As a beginner in the field, I would uh, not have a clue where to start and uh, what to trust and not trust. Would you consider posting a recommended reading list on your website or on the same page that you can stream the podcast, perhaps, to help us out? Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of our fellow nerds who would love to read from the same sources. And you know what? You're absolutely right. And unfortunately, Eric isn't here to give us those sources. Um, but uh, I do know that he has a small little library of his own that he can reference mm -hmm. uh, of books that you can look up. Um, and we'll be happy to give those to you on a future episode. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it all depends on the subject. Yeah, sometimes we have some really awesome websites and we have other yeah. ones where we just kind of take factoids and piecemeal them together um so as far as something that's really comprehensive sometimes it's a little bit yeah. harder but um i will say if you guys want to learn more about um some of the um uncontacted and nomadic um and isolationist tribes of brazil and the amazon region you can go to survivalinternational.org um, and they have some very interesting information about that cool thank you for sharing that mm -hmm. Uh, he, he continues with his feedback. Um, I'm glad you're enjoying my feedback rather than thinking, oh, not that, this guy again. Um, and I guess I better clarify. You speculated that I'm a Brit, and you are absolutely right. I am Pete from Bristol. Still. Um, but I've now registered on your site, so it auto-filled his, with his username when gotcha. he filled out the feedback. I better go. I'm sure you've had enough of me now. Thanks again and keep up the great work. I wish I could have listened to you guys when I was in, at school. I love history but hated my teacher and opted to take geography instead, which sucked. Mind you, there wasn't really any decent internet back then, let alone downloadable podcasts. <laughs> Thanks again, Pete. Pete, you are very welcome, sir. The map is growing. And we have one more super great one. Yeah, I really like this one. Uh, Warms my heart a little bit. Yes. So this one is from Miss St. Germain. Um, and it says, Dear Nerds on History, Hiya, I'm currently an 18-year-old from Washington State on foreign exchange in Germany. Uh, since I'm new to the podcast, not I'm not quite caught up yet. I listen whenever I have free time in between classes or on the bus. In the week or so that I've listened to, um, I've got caught up to... April 22nd, 2013. Good God, this podcast has been going for a while, huh? This is episode 132, folks. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. I plan on listening to Nerds on Film once I finish the backlogs. <laughs> Which will be sometime in by Valentine's Day, I yeah, think. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, you can thank the imger.com user Walkin' Crow for giving you guys a shout out as a good history podcast. Sweet. 
I'm so glad I listened. I wanted to say thank you for creating content that brings a smile to my face and inspires me to learn more, especially currently living somewhere so full of history. From your guest jokes and seances, I love it all. So far, Gilligan's Egypt Part 2 uh, had my favorite cold open, and I had to contain my laughter while on an evening bus. Oh, uh, Gilligan's Egypt Part 2 was, I believe, uh, it was one of the Sir, it wasn't one of the Sir Brian ones. Or was it? Mm. I think it was. I think it was. It was, was one. It? Yeah, I think it's the one where uh, I have to pull um, a lady out of the well, and it turns out that it's Sean's voice. Sean lends his voice, so it's this very masculine-sounding woman. What does that have to do with Egypt? Nothing. Okay, <laughs> Absolutely great. nothing. Great. Um, <laughs> I could be wrong, but um, one of those gold opens is sure. really, really fantastic. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I never thought I'd be so interested in hearing about popes and love hearing how it can all be tied back to Egypt. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to really take a moment and realize how amazing history actually is and become more excited and want to explore it. Thank again, thanks again for making my time away from home feel more homey. Your newbie nerd, St. Germain, otherwise known as Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie, St. Germain, however, whatever you want to be called. That's... Thank you so much for writing in. And, Absolutely. And I I always find it really touching when people are inspired by the yeah. stuff that we talk about, even if it's just to to either go out and learn more or to go out and do your own thing or whatever. As we say quite frequently, don't take our word for it. Yeah, right? please don't. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes seriously don't. <laughs> we, could, we could be really full of crap. <laughs> um, but one of the person who doesn't think we're full of crap is Courtney. Okay, Courtney. Courtney wrote in just the last episode and asked us some some career advice. And her response to us came in just the other day, in fact, yesterday. And uh, the subject is just thanks. Hey, nerds. I just listened to the latest nerds on history. Uh, Nobody knows where King Tut's junk is. Great title. Yeah, it Uh, was. (laughs) Yeah, it was. Uh, I love how we said, hope that doesn't end up being the episode title. Sorry, Eric. Too good not to... Yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you all so much for your amazing advice and encouragement in the career in the historical field. It was great hearing real positive feedback from somebody with more experience than myself, and it definitely made me feel more inspired to continue pursuing my passion in college. Maybe I'll be some sort of college professor slash archaeologist, like a certain whip-wielding adventurer. You mean Percy Fawcett? (laughs) (laughs) He didn't carry a whip. Oh, he did have a did have a striking brimmed hat, though. Okay. I will say. But he also had a, this handlebar. Sure. Stash. He was British, so, you know, that's the one other Bully. <laughs> Bully. <laughs> My God, we're going to find the civilization of Zen, we will. <laughs> yes. I have no idea what he sounded like. That was... <laughs> uh, that's a pretty good assumption, I'm sure. <laughs> just make sure everyone sounds like Nigel Thornberry. That's just, of course. <laughs> that's what we do. Don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Every uh, old-timey British explorer sounds like Nigel Thornberry. Done. Yeah. Nerds on history. Uh, <laughs> anyway, go on. By the way, I didn't mind that you gave advice on the show. I quite enjoyed being a beta tester for the new segment, Ask Nerdy. And you know what, folks? It just keeps getting better because we got a feedback in just now as we were reading really? feedback. Holy crap. Like, the serendipitous timing of this is Good quite Lord. amazing. Okay, I want to read this one. Yeah, this is from William. William. Subject... Poor American attempts at doing an Australian accent. He must be talking about Eric. (laughs) Because I don't try to do Australian accents. I don't either. Because I easily fall into Cockney. Right, exactly. (laughs) Hello, nerds. I'm a recent discoverer of your podcast and especially love Nerds on History. I often listen to it in the car with my sister driving uh, to and from uni in Brisbane, Australia. 
While I love your podcast for its content and bantery atmosphere, there is one issue that I cannot let pass unchallenged. As an Australian, I cannot stand hearing Americans attempting to speak with an Australian accent. So few of you can actually do it well. Everyone else fails miserably at it. Please don't do it again, although you will probably torture me with it in the future now that I've written this. Anyway, keep up the good work and don't forget to stay nerdy. Yeah. You know what, William? Don't ruin our fun. Yeah. <laughs> don't and ruin I, Eric's fun. I gotta, I gotta say, William, just speaking from the heart here, you're the first Australian listener who's actually had an issue with yeah. us doing it. Everyone else has gotten kind of gotten a kick out of it because they think... Because it's so bad. Because it's so bad and they think we're doing it well. It's like we... Think of um, Brits doing American accents, and because there's the, the well-trained, the ones who went to like conservatories, do, do a really well. great job. Yeah. But then there's also the kind of shoddy ones on BBC that mm, are not yeah. so good. Every once in a while, you can very hear it twangy. And, they yeah. try to put a twang into it, and they assume that that's how all Americans sound. Yeah, well, it, or I mean, because just as it is, Americans tend to be more nasally than um, sure than say the British. So yeah. apparently, we all just talk like this. Yeah, well, or you can see when they're like when they're speech falls out of their nose and back down into their throat again exactly. and you're like "Ooh, that sounded weird what happened yeah totally it, no hey get where you're coming from because i'm yeah. sure it is a little grating on the earlobes mm-hmm. and i don't blame you for that yeah that being said sorry but not sorry like it's we, we're, we're, it's really it's all for funsies exactly. and all again fun it's, we we know we never meet a fence yeah nobody's legitimately trying to be australian here so yeah. and believe me being the person who has even a tiniest bit of dialect teaching, mm-hmm. we get it. We know it takes months to learn to do an, uh, a dialect accurately. Yeah. If not longer. Exactly. Um, I I think I do a pretty good British accent. I'm still learning to do some of the dialects more effectively than others. And I yeah. never claim any of them are perfect. Yeah. So, I, I'm fairly yeah. good at doing American dialects. Yeah. And Eliza Doolittle. I'm Eliza Doolittle. I am. Oh my God. I haven't done that in forever. (laughs) I know. I think the last time we did it was when you did Queen Elizabeth I as Eliza Doolittle. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I got to get through my bustles. Hang on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was just mostly because for whatever reason, everybody's impression of me, like it was three. (laughs) I'm Sarah Ashley. I'm Sarah Ashley. I am. And it was like three different people (laughs) all determined that that was my, that was their impression of me. And I was like. Since when am I a flower girl? Folks, from- this is the <laughs> mid-13 to mid-2014 f- era yeah, of, of, right? nerd- of nerdonomy. We're way now in eras when. at this point. I know, way back when. Crazy. Um, anyway. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that was awesome. That was got- awesome. Thanks for the feedback, William. And again, yes. sorry, not sorry. And thank you for letting me know where you're from. Yes, indeed. We've got a couple people from Brisbane. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. You guys should get together and like talk about oh how cool Oh my God, you guys can have is. a nerdonomy con. Yeah. It's like three people in a bar, but it's I fine. don't care. It'd be the first Nerdonomy Con. We'll send you a Photoshop template to get your own banner printed. <laughs> Sorry, guys, we're on a budget here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, at any rate, and it's just like clip art. <laughs> yeah, um, Sarah, why don't you tell our listeners uh, how to send us this awesome feedback? Uh, well, frankly, you guys could try smoke signals, carrier pigeon, telegraph, but those are really ineffective. So the best way to do it is you can go to nerdonomy.com, click that 
talk to us button and uh, it'll shoot us an email right to our inboxes and we love to hear from you you can also hit us up on facebook instagram or twitter all those are really good options but if you happen to be going to the website and you see that little handy dandy donate button it'd be really awesome if you guys could throw a little bit of cash our way that way it just keeps the podcast going if you want to get something out of it go to the merch page that's cool too yeah um but really the most important thing that you can possibly do for us is tell your friends you can uh go to itunes and give us a review you can repost any of our stuff whenever we you know share an episode or post anything like that just tell your friends about this really rad podcast where people hang out and talk about history or that other really rad podcast where people hang out and talk about movies and tell dirty jokes um we have a really good time doing this and we'd like to continue to keep doing this. So until we have like a bajillion listeners where people will give us, you know, actual ad money, um, <laughs> and then we really need your help. So thank you guys very much for listening and spread the word of nerd. Like a bird turd. Like a bird turd. It's now made its way to nerds on history, yep. folks. Uh, and you know what, nerds, it is that time. So until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode, same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. Smallpox, huh? Yeah, I know. I heard it was making a comeback. I, it's funny because I would have gone for malaria personally, but. R- you want to go with malaria? I got a. I'm sure I got a pet mosquito somewhere around here that we can just send in at you. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Thanks. Sweet.